Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by Josh Berman, managing partner of private lending firm Quid. Josh has been in technology for over two decades and co-founded MySpace in 2003, after which he went on to start Beachmint before starting both Troy Capital Partners in 2016 and Quid in 2018. Today, Quid is one of the most active lending companies that provides liquidity to shareholders of top private companies. During the show, we talked about the difference between secondary selling and borrowing against private shares, the issue of trap liquidity at funds both at the LP and GP level, and the learnings he took away from his experience at MySpace. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Josh. Hey, Josh, it's great to see you, and thank you uh, for being on the show today. Samir, always a pleasure, and uh, so good to reconnect. Well, this has been a long time coming, and you know, given where we are in the market, I have, I have so many questions for you in terms of the, uh, the model that you operate with Quid. But before we get into what you do now, let's go back in time and go into how you started off in technology, because you've had so many roles going from VC to lender to, of course, starting off as a uh, operator. Yeah, wow. Let's see if I'm a little old now. It's a little hazy. I've been in tech for so long, a little over 20, 25 years now. Quite a journey. I'm very excited where I am today, but it did start when I was a little, had a little less gray. Right from business school, I met some great men and women. And from there, we've started, heard this thing back in 97 about the web and the internet. I don't think there was Google or Amazon or Facebook or Netflix yet. But uh, there's a couple little sites out there, and uh, we were having a lot of fun figuring it all out. And my background is I'm a, definitely a longtime entrepreneur for the first you know, 18, 20 years of my tech career. Started probably five or six companies. So kind of takes me where I am today, helping out a lot of these entrepreneurs. But uh, certainly had a fun journey. Not all successes, a lot of failures as well. One of them, I'll talk about the failure because it's always fun to start with a failure is at a company back in 98 called xDrive. And it's pretty much Dropbox, as most of your viewers probably know Dropbox. And we were a little early. Still, we had those floppy disks, and it took a while for stuff to get to the cloud. But we, uh, I think we are a little early, and an interesting thing happened at xDrive. A couple of interesting things. One, we raised $100 million. That was fun here in Santa Monica. The bad thing is 2000 happened. And like today, people today are watching these global markets and being like, wow, is this ever going to end? It's pretty volatile. It was pretty quick and sudden back in 2000, and I can remember it. Maybe a lot of your viewers could. But if you remember, the Nasdaq dropped 70%, I think, in like two days. It was pretty wild. But one thing, and I'll come back to what I do today, is right before the market crashed in 2000 or 99, 2000, I was at a hot tech company, XDrive, and I had all these stock, all these options. And I was like, man, we're going public. I want to get capital gains. Someone's like, you got to get cap gains versus ordinary. Big difference. I'm like, great. I actually took out on my credit card and paid for my options. I think it was like $50,000. I was pretty poor. And I owned all these shares, which I thought was great. This is smart. Now, what happened was we went bankrupt. And this story will come back to what I do today. So I lost my $50,000. And the worst case, I had a tax bill because I had to pay taxes on my option versus my 409A. I didn't know this, but I thought it was a smart idea. But I'll, I'll get back to that story later. After, after XDrive and my big credit card bill, I went on and started a cool marketing company. And from there, the same group, core group of people I went to business school and a few other folks, we started uh, this company called MySpace. Uh, and it was a pretty fun journey, pretty remarkable. We grew really quickly, started it in 2003, sold it in 2005. 
I could talk in three podcasts on the MySpace story, but I won't. We'll do that in a different time. Hopefully, if you have me back. And uh, it was an unbelievable journey. Obviously, we saw what happened with Facebook, and at the time, YouTube actually started on MySpace. And after we got, we sold to uh, Mr. Murdoch and the folks at News Corp, and uh, us as founders kind of left, and a new crew came in and took it over. And we know the demise of, of MySpace is really interesting, but it was an unbelievable experience while it lasted. I had a great outcome personally. And I had a great experience and I worked with some unbelievably smart folks that are part of the whole tech ecosystem. I've done amazing companies since, but it was quite a journey. And I learned a lot as an entrepreneur about stock and options investing kind of will lead me to what I'm doing today. And after that, I've done a few other cool startups, sold a bunch and uh, and entered kind of the dark side, your world, Samir, the financing side, the world of venture, the world of private equity. And uh, I thought I could relax a little bit more, but quite the opposite, as you know, uh, it's pretty busy in this financing world. People think we just have checks. Not the case. We do so much work with underwriting, reviews, uh, working with uh, limited partners and working with, most importantly, the entrepreneurs and our clients. Uh, it is quite a bit of work. So uh, I haven't relaxed yet. One day I'll get there, uh, but I'm having a lot of fun right now on the on the dark side, the financing side, work with great operators and uh, having a lot of fun doing it. One of the things that we've seen over the last decade is the difficulty of startup employees to untrap some of that liquidity. And we've seen some advances. We've seen secondary platforms that allow it company, you know, liquidity programs. We've seen lending, not necessarily mainstream lending in terms of banks doing it, but uh, specialty lenders like Huid. Tell us exactly what was the problem that you were seeing that just wasn't being solved by existing partners? No, great question. That's really why we're excited about the business. What I, what personally, I told you that story where I was out of pocket. So one problem we saw was folks like me and others should never be out of pocket for a great asset, they, what they have. And there's a lot of paper money out there. And why take personal risk on stuff you work so hard and have such a bad taste? So we saw one potential opportunity to help out folks that do want to get some liquidity. Uh, the other thing we saw was really more of a macroeconomic phenomenon. Like 20 years ago, companies were worth maybe $10 million, $100 million in value, and they go public. What we saw happen in the last probably like six, seven years is you're seeing, you know, the word is unicorn, but you're seeing you know hundreds of unicorn companies, it's a weird word, but are worth billions and billions of dollars in value. So what we've seen at the macro landscape is incredible technology companies that don't want to go public yet. So what's happening is a lot of shareholders are so much wealth inside that company, or if a company is worth $100 billion, think about how much of the employees own that and the founders, or even a company's worth $10 billion. It's incredible amounts of wealth. So we were reflecting, I started off in venture capital, I started investing in a lot of equity in a lot of companies. I felt there's an opportunity. My point of view was, Hey, I'm working so hard. You know, I'm a founder. He or she has worked so hard and has so much paper wealth, and their staff is working hard. They're still not making. They don't. We don't usually, as entrepreneurs, pay ourselves that much money. We're not getting rich on our salaries. We're getting rich on the company, and we're trying to help create and salt make real, uh, real great solutions to folks and create massive value in companies. But a lot of people are making a lot of paper money, and what would happen is. How am I going to unlock that and get some liquidity to maybe buy my first home, maybe send a kid to school, uh, or if my company's doing really well and it's about to go public, 
how do I buy my shares to optimize tax strategies? So I get capital gains versus ordinary income. A lot of money in the past when companies would go public, most of the time, even today, people do this thing called a cashless exercise. You wait, you go public, you wait six months, and then you get a big check. But what pe- people don't realize is I'm paying high, higher, more taxes than I should. So there's all this talk and thought went into how can we really help out these employees, get some liquidity, do it in a tax efficient way, and not be personally liable for it. And the last thing I'll say is what we saw before quit is you're right. There's other solutions out there, these secondary marketplaces where folks were actually transacting, getting the liquidity they wanted. Now, we thought, okay, that's interesting. But what you're doing as an employee, you're selling your shares. You're now out. I don't have the upside anymore. I made a sale and I got some money and I'm paying taxes on it. We thought a better solution was keep all your shares. Let's try to lend you money against it so you could keep your shares. Enjoy. Hopefully you're at a company where you really believe in and you think it's going to keep going up. So you don't have to lose that upside. Keep your shares. We'll lend it. And our point of view was, man, all this equity I have on paper, just like a home or a car is an asset. I should be able to go borrow against it and get some liquidity. I personally, I could almost everybody I know when they buy a home, you know, you take a loan out, right? And you have, it's so easy and it's kind of normal. I think that's the future of stock options and equity. It'll be so normal. People are going to become more and more educated. And that's what we're trying to do at Quid where it's a powerful asset you work super hard to create and you have something there and you should be able to get some financing for that, for all that equity you created. You know, if we kind of look back in time, I mean, you mentioned starting businesses in the late nineties and in the late nineties, things were very different from a liquidity time to liquidity standpoint. Companies like Amazon went public in three years. I think it was like 96 and then 99 to go public. And it wasn't uncommon to see companies go public in some cases, 18 to 24 months during the height of the uh, the dot-com bubble. And you had those boutique investment banks. Obviously, now, the and, and this has happened over time, the time to exit is getting longer and longer. And you have these employees that are joining these companies where in order to start that clock of exercising their share, they may have to write a massive check because the 409A valuation is extremely high because the last round was done at a billion or $2 billion. What are the options for folks like that right now? And maybe you can juxtapose a little bit about lending, borrowing against those shares. How does that work mechanically versus, you know, you mentioned some of the tax inefficient ways of actually selling a position at a time and then getting the liquidity, but again, having a big tax bill to pay at that time. Yeah. So you're certainly seeing, you know, last five years is different today. Today is pretty uh, volatile markets. Uh, so it's actually created a lot of more demand for a product because it's hard, harder and harder to get financings today. But you're right in general, whether if it's the macro environments, IPO windows might be shut a little harder to do today. And it might, it'll most likely might reopen in maybe it's two years or five years. But irregardless of those uh, IPO windows, Companies do want to stay private longer. They want to prove out their business model. They don't want to be in the public markets just yet. And uh, from 20 years ago, people were just jumping to go public without recurring revenue and more of a dream. So I think it's better. I think we're as a macro level today, I feel much better in the markets because people are being smart. They're waiting to go public till they have more predictability. Of course, these are market leaders and pretty awesome companies. And we've enjoyed the last you know five years of some pretty amazing, remarkable companies. We got to work with these companies, get public. So I think ultimately, 
Uh, it all comes down to education on what you should do. It's I think about it as some of the best companies, the leadership there are now be are really pro-employee. They want to retain them. Uh, they want to offer them better benefits. And your options are a very important piece of your compensation. So you need to educate folks and they're doing that. And it's just starting. And I'm excited about the financings because I think financing on your options, if you believe your company is going to be super special and grow, it's a much more elegant opportunity if you're seeking liquidity to buy that first home. Or as you mentioned, you should try to exercise your options early. And unlike me, why went out of pocket, let a company like Quid or another company do that for you. And the most important thing is our options, there's no uh, get personal guarantee against it. Meaning if you happen to work at a company and I and, me, and our company made you a loan and the company, whatever reason, didn't work out and I lent you, make it up a number, $10 million. And for whatever reason, your shares are worth $1 million, That's all you would have to pay us back is the million that the shares are worth. That extra loss is not, it's on our work to, uh, to uh, make that loan. And what we do at Quit is, we spend a lot of time, we hire great men and women that in you know, underwriting staff. And these are folks that are going out, looking at the best companies and deciding to our, to our company, Quit, this is an amazing company. These are amazing places. These are the companies we want to work with. So if you will, we'll green light many companies, maybe not hundreds of companies, but maybe like 20, 30 companies that we think are remarkable companies. And we'll go out and work with those companies directly and offer these financing solutions. So it's pretty exciting and it's all about education. It is complex. Uh, people have different shares, RSUs, ISOs and NSOs, and there's different tax treatments and we're not tax specialists, but luckily our, we have partnerships with the Ernst & Youngs and the Price Waterhouses and great uh, accounting firms that go along with us. And it's really about providing a benefit, a retention benefit and a benefit of that employee, because ultimately the company wants them to stay in that company and provide and talk, you know, word of mouth across the company, how amazing that company is to allow for some liquidity. When I had my companies, the VCs and such didn't want anybody getting liquid. I think that's changed. You know, we're people are working hard at these companies for a long time, as you said, and uh, they should be able to get some liquidity against their shares. And ultimately, what we found, what we've learned is the companies actually don't really love when they're selling their shares because think about it. Now, an employee at a, such a company has sold shares. Their upside's gone. Are they going to work as hard? We don't know. Then random people potentially are on the cap sheet of this company. So it kind of creates, there's two sides to the trade. What we try to do at Quid is, and why we like financing is, we'll lend money. Now, the company hopes it still goes up. The employee hopes it still goes up. We hope it still goes up. So everybody's on the same side of the of the of the financing where we all want the company to win. And the last thing I'll say is people that come to us are like, oh my God, my company's worth way too much. I think this might be the top. I want to get liquid right now. Those are folks that aren't really candidates for us at Quid because then I would advise them, Quid might not be the solution. You should try to sell it in those secondary markets you mentioned. Because if you think it's going to go down, that's probably what you'd want to do. So we try to be very transparent with with folks about that. From the uh, perspective of the employee, effectively putting myself in that position, I would be taking a loan to be able to exercise my options. I'm still the shareholder. So nothing changes from a share position standpoint on the company's cap table. And then I retain on some of the upside without taking the tax consequence right now. Is that more or less a good characterization of how that would work? That's exactly right. As the employee, you might, and many of our employees, especially in the last few years, many companies were getting ready to go public and they wanted to 
optimize tax treatments. They wanted to get capital gains uh, versus waiting for a cashless exercise. So yes, it's as easy as we don't take the shares. The company has the shares. You have the shares. You need to own the shares. We don't you know, require them. Uh, we just need to know that you have the shares. Yeah, you're really Samir. You really work at XYZ. So we, need to, we do that type of work. But again, you're exactly right. The shares stay with you. You've now not sold anything. So we're all hoping that it increases. And then we would loan you. Usually what we loan you is you, you, you might come to me and say, hey, Josh, I work at this great company. I'm worth, I have $10 million worth of shares. Now we have our own underwriting team. We might say, we agree. We might actually think you have $12 million worth, but maybe we agree it's 10. Maybe we disagree and think, hey, you really, times are, it's a little volatile. You have common shares versus pref shares. Uh, market conditions are pretty wild. So Mary, we don't think you have 10 million. We think you have eight. It's usually not too controversial because end of the day, you're not selling me those shares. We're just trying to peg a value of what we think they're worth to figure out how much we could lend you. Uh, so you might say I have 8 million or we might say you have 8 million and we're going to loan you $2 million against your eight or $3 million. So that's kind of what we do here. And well, it's pretty simple. We just wire you the $3 million. You keep the shares. Now you could go ahead and use that money. Like you said, maybe I'm going to use that to exercise my stock options and pay those little tax bill between your strike price and the current 409A, which might be a lot less than the real true value of the stock. Or you might just say, hey, I have $2 million. I want to go to Vegas. I don't know if you'll do that. You wouldn't, Samir. Or I have two million. I want to buy my family their first home. And you would go ahead and do that. Or I want to diversify. I want to own some other tech shares. We have clients that have a variety of different needs. But I would say a lot of needs are around this option exercise. And I think folks are getting, we know a lot about this and we're getting smarter. But certainly it's about educating these comp- you know, the companies and then ultimately educating the employees on why this is so important. Literally, our clients are coming back. We're saving them millions and millions of dollars in taxes. Not only that, many of our clients, I'd say well over 70% of our clients have come back and said, I am so happy I met you guys at Quid. If I would have sold these shares, I would have made X. Because I did this financing, my stock went up 10X or 3X or 5X. You guys literally saved. I made so much more money by holding on these shares. And that's because our solution, again, you're not selling, you're keeping that upside. And these are our clients who are very bullish on their companies. And we are too, because we, we don't work with companies that we don't approve in underwriting. So it's not like we work with every unicorn or every you know tech company. We're been, we've been pretty conservative at Quid. And if you're lucky enough to work at one of these top companies and that we like, we should definitely, you know, we would definitely talk to those clients about a solution. One of the things that I, I really wanted to distill down to is, is, what you brought up earlier, we're, we're in this incredibly volatile market and where we have seen lenders, maybe more traditional ones, is either taking a personal guarantee and not really providing any underlying value to the shares, but really providing value to the person's entire balance sheet, which often has more traditional assets. We also saw a company more recently provide loans to their own employees that were recourse, which of course put the employee in a tough position if the company has any type of troubles and you're doing non-recourse loans to these employees. So you're, you're really bearing the risk that the company is going to do what you think, which is exit at a price that's high enough to be able to repay the loan that you provided. Given what's happened in the market, you know, many of the valuations, both preferred and common, were quite high in 2021. I think that was one of the I think we'll look back at 2021 as being one of the most anomalous years that we've ever seen in in the history of 
capital markets, given how much liquidity was driven in. How have you thought about mitigating risk? And where do you see the your underwriting standards right now as it relates to looking at preferences? Because many of these companies raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And because you're lending against common stock, of course, it's lower in the uh, liquidation waterfall. Yeah, correct. We do lend against uh, PREF too. So we've done some business with uh, not just, it's really all stakeholders. Most commonly it's employees and then some past employees, but we do work with some investors and such that have PREF because uh, they're looking for sometimes some leverage or liquidity. Uh, however, for the most part, it is common. And what we've seen today, I agree with you, uh, 2021 was pretty remarkable. There's some interesting years I've experienced as well too. So I don't know if it'll be the most remarkable. I'm pretty bullish on tech. And I think Looking back, like I mentioned, when I went to business school, some of the biggest companies in the world didn't exist. So in 10 to 15 years from now, there's really smart folks working on companies that will be the biggest in the world. So to me, I love tech. It's super exciting. What's going to happen in the future? I'm beyond bullish. So there's going to be multi-hundred billion dollar companies get created. And hopefully we're doing some financings around it and helping out these folks. So I'm excited about it. But we are in in an interesting period today as we sit in 2022 how volatile the markets, the public markets are, and equally as volatile are the private markets. So you're right. Rounds are getting done at lower valuations. Uh, liquidity is usually not available. So for us specifically as a business, our business is bigger than ever. We have a lot of folks looking for liquidity because there's a lot less options out there. So people are coming to us. I want some liquidity. I need to do this. I need to do that. What we've done to your point is we've gotten really, we've always underwritten. Again, we're very careful on the companies we end up working with. We're looking for top market leaders, reoccurring revenue, business plan proven out. We're not going to underwrite and approve companies who are just on brand name and maybe the revenues are going to come later. We've never done that. So we've always taken a conservative approach to the technology companies we want to underwrite. We're continuing to do that. And the companies we have in our portfolio are still all, all, I think, awesome, amazing companies we've picked. Now, with that said, obviously valuations have come down. So what have we done? We've gotten more stringent on underwriting, you know, companies that we thought were worth X times multiples. We could go out in public comps and reasonably talk to these companies and say, I know you thought you were worth this, but now you're worth half that because of X, Y, and Z. So we've been doing that. And again, we're not selling or transaction. So there's not too much argument. We've gotten really tight on valuations and our underwriting uh, standards. But what I think that's ultimately going to allow us and our clients is for a much amazing outcome you know, call it two, five, seven years out, as there are underwriting and these valuations are lower, we're lending. But as these companies do come out of a cycle, and it could be a while, but we'll have some pretty awesome outcomes here at, at our company. And uh, we want to be there for clients. And these companies we worked with over the last five, four, five, six years, some are not public, but they are amazing companies. We definitely are continuing to work with these companies. We have strong conviction in these market leaders. And for us, it's kind of an interesting time because we're now able to do financings at lower valuations and the companies are reasonable. But that said, there are some companies out there, believe it or not, that have actually increased valuations, only a handful, maybe less, uh, that we do work with. And there's some pretty remarkable companies that are actually have done uh, up rounds recently. But for the most part, it's, uh, it's the opposite. Yeah. Looking back in history, oftentimes the, the late stage acts as a rough proxy to what's happening in the public markets. Of course, the public markets, in terms of revenue multiples in 2021, were off the charts in in some cases, 30, 40x. And in the private markets, you often saw multiples, you know, for a SaaS company, 
that were 40, 50, and even beyond in terms of valuation. I think that some companies are struggling with thinking about their employee retention because the very piece of paper that was meant to incent people is now, in many cases, not an incentive for people because they're underwater, right? So, you know, you see someone like Instacart, for example, publicly change their valuation. We may see other companies over time because the private markets do lag. What are companies doing right now that you're seeing and observing in terms of retaining these uh, employees with the, you know, continued issue of maybe what the grant price that were, that was given in 2020 or 21 no longer being anywhere close to what they might get in, in, in the market today. Yeah, we've seen a lot. Again, these are companies we work with are top tier A companies and run by amazing men and women. So what we've noticed is they're bringing, they're all doing new 409 valuation work, bringing that 409A down low. So when you hire new employees, it's a very big you know attraction tool to try to hire somebody. And secondarily, we're seeing a lot of uh, refresher grants to folks. So if I'm at a company, my 409 used to be $17, you might see it at $4 and you're seeing them send more options. And for the company, it's pretty good because you're giving employees a lot of equity. And again, a lot of most options are over a four-year period. So now all of a sudden, they're kind of bummed out. Their old strike price or almost they can't really capture that or they don't think they will. But they're getting a lot more shares and a lot lower 409 valuations. So the hope for the companies and the reason they're doing it is they're usually you're only good as your people. And we've learned some of our top management teams, uh, they have unbelievable staffs and they want to keep these people there. So programs like new 409As, new refreshers, we're seeing happen all across the board. And we're also seeing companies like uh, you saw a lot in 2021 and 2020 about these tender programs, letting uh, their investors or their own company balance sheet give some liquidity. And I think the topic of liquidity and employees have enjoyed liquidity opportunities over the last five, six years. And to take that away from folks is going to be really challenging. So we're seeing, we know we've really ramped up our company programs and they're educating their employees. You could still get some liquidity. Uh, you could do it through a, a tender program or actually you could sell your shares or work with a company like Quid and we could do some financings against it. So we think that's a big, big retention tool and a good perk for folks. And we're seeing a lot more business on our end too. And it's just getting started. I think it comes down to education because it is complex. I have options and there's taxes and I have these RSUs that might expire. I have ISOs. So the whole thing, it's still confusing to m most people, but I'm predicting in five years, it's going to be as common as walking into Wells Fargo. I bought a house for a million dollars. I need a loan. And it's going to be pretty simple uh, is where we're moving towards. And uh, I'm excited about that. It certainly does seem that the trend we're going to is creating more liquidity in the private markets. And we've seen that certainly on the, the company side through, as we've talked about throughout this conversation, secondary sales, lending like you're providing. It's still not ubiquitous. I think that there's still a lot of hesitation in Main Street financiers to be able to provide this. But a lot of our listeners are actually LPs and venture fund managers. And when we draw out this analogy and thinking about trap liquidity, a lot of fund managers are sitting on a lot of illiquid carry, for example, or you have LPs that have large positions and in today's world may need to call or may need to get liquid in some way. And there's not a lot of options in terms of generating liquidity in a way that you still retain some upside. 
And so do you also see a market in the future where we'll see liquidity for those type of applications, not just at the company level? Absolutely. And we've actually done uh, financings and and lent against uh, venture portfolios or venture positions. So without a doubt, we think it's going to be prevalent and common. Uh, I do think uh, as you know, these venture funds are usually 10-year funds and you have lockups and you have certain cash capital calls and such, there is an opportunity for some liquidity so they could go ahead and do some other things. And, you know, I'm a venture capitalist myself. So many times you want to unleash and get some extra capital. You might not be raising a fund or might be in a time like today for all of us, it's a difficult time to be fundraising, of course. So to have liquidity options available to you through your portfolio, some of your winners to get some financing so you could, you know, actually we had one interesting case study. We had a, a venture capital come to us and they leveraged, they were up big on a position. We love the company. So we lent them money so they could buy even more shares. So you could see opportunities uh, like that as well, too. But a lot of folks want to maybe just invest in other uh, amazing companies as well. So both are there. We've done that. And I think, it, like you said, it's going to be more and more prevalent uh, solution. Because again, to your point, you can't go to First Republic. You can't go to Wells Fargo and say, can I borrow against my e-liquid tech stock? It's not going to happen. Now you have to put up other stuff or personally guarantee stuff. What we do is say, absolutely, you could borrow against your e-liquid tech stock. That's what we do. And we're going to do that for you with no recourse. Do you think this type of lending ever becomes mainstream? And right now, there's very limited partners that do this. And you've done many of these deals with a small select group of companies. As you mentioned, these are companies that you've greenlit, that you've followed, that you have high conviction in. But that's probably a very small subset of the universe. And there's a number of other companies that may not fit the exact parameters of what Quid does or maybe another lender. Are you seeing any type of trend lines for traditional lenders to be able to provide this type of financing? I think for certain in the future, there will be other people that might, it's a different risk profile and it might be a different economic split, but certainly companies that maybe do their series A, B, or C also do want some liquidity. And, you know, the companies might set some guidelines. We haven't played in that uh, ecosystem yet, but I am predicting there will be players out there that will lend against these folks in a non-recourse way uh, in the future because, uh, the topic of liquidity, again, it's an asset. And not only do we believe there's others that I've talked to in the ecosystem that believe, and we, you know, maybe we enter that world uh, in the not so distant future. We might have a different subset of LPs that want to take more upside on the equity and take more risk. We've been very conservative to date where we like uh, are just, it's a brand new ecosystem, a brand new marketplace. So we're actually started off very conservative. Let's pick the best you know, what we think are the top quality, later stage uh, tech companies. But I think people are going to move besides even tech and people might move into pharmaceutical, entertainment, maybe you finance actors in movies, I don't know, or sports sports uh, personalities in uh, NBA teams, you finance against contracts. There's so much creativity uh, around financings. But uh, you step back, we just think, again, if, if we think private tech is a great asset, if other folks think late earlier stage private tech where I could get better returns and take more risk is a good asset. That's why there's venture capitalists that do angel rounds, series A, series B, and late stage. You have different risk profiles and you get different risk reward. We started off really late, but I do think you're right, Samir, there'll be other players going earlier. It'll certainly be fascinating to watch over the years ahead in terms of how this market evolves in solving for trap liquidity at both uh, the company level as well as 
with uh, funds and LPs. Beyond um, just looking at, at this part of the market, and let's maybe step back and look more holistically, you've been through multiple cycles, and you mentioned 2021 as being remarkable, which I agree, I think 99 was also quite remarkable in many ways. If you were to draw a comparison between the two eras, how would you liken what's happening right now to maybe what we saw you know, roughly 22 years ago? Yeah, much more comfortable today than I was, say, you know, I was a little younger, but reflecting back on what was going what was going public in 99 and the quality of these companies, it was just a business plan, no revenues and valuations were soaring and companies were getting public. I'm much more comfortable today in what's going on than I was back then, because, you know, these are still amazing quality companies. We all go through cycles. I think the macro financial changes are due to not just the business climates. Yes, I think multiples climbed a little steep, but I do think there's other macro things going on in the world that are causing kind of the downward pressure on the on the public markets, which is also causing downward pressure on the private markets. So as an investor, I'm still beyond excited about technology. I think whether this, uh, I think it's gonna be pretty volatile for a little while in the short term, but I think long term, if you could pick out the best entrepreneurs and the best companies, and invest in those, you're going to make a pretty awesome return. And, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. It's hard to predict. So you want to have a diversified strategy as a venture capitalist or as a lender, as the companies we pick. But I think if you're diversified enough and uh, you're investing with some great teams, uh, there's going to be, like I said at the beginning, there's going to be 10 new companies that we have no idea what they are today. could be in AI, robotics, uh, SaaS, whatever it may be. They're going to be the leaders of the of the world. If we could be in some of those, if we could be in one or two or three of those of those ten, or and there'll be another thirty right behind it that are pretty valuable. So it's exciting. Uh, the world's changing so quickly, and technology is leading the way. So I'm very bullish. I tell myself, family members, and others, it's a great place to invest is in technology, and uh, I'm always going to do it. So hopefully, we'll see what happens. It feels like in many ways, we as investors have to decouple things. One is really the long-term nature of technology and innovation and understanding that that has even beyond a market cycles that have happened over the last 20 years has always been an upward arc and innovation happens in any, any period. It really doesn't matter if the markets are down, entrepreneurs are still starting companies and there's continued uh, innovation that's happening at you know rapid paces. And then there's the investing in technology, which has some transient characteristics when you have boom markets, you have bust markets. Of course, right now we're in a market where everything is resetting. But you know, from an investing standpoint, is there anything that investors should be doing differently? I think the natural reaction right now is to slow down, relook at everything, triage the portfolio. I was reading an article back in from 2000 where Fred Wilson was effectively saying, we're resetting right now. We're triaging our portfolio, I feel like investors are saying the same thing today, 22 years later. Is there anything you know, within your mind, given how bullish you are, that suggests that maybe this isn't a time to be you know, slow and methodical, but to really look at opportunities and hit the gas pedal? Yeah, certainly I think there's specific companies that are remarkable that I would not slow down on investing. And there's certain companies that's hard to even get shares, some of the top companies. So I like to think about a super long-term approach. And I think what the venture community, private equity community 
we are actually being able, we're all enjoying is we're getting to get access to some great companies at lower prices than we did last year or two years ago. So it's an interesting time. And I've met some really smart folks in private equity that love times like this. They call it, you know, we're shopping on sale or let's, they're hoping it actually gets a little worse because that's when they've actually made their best returns. So I'd say folks are being and it's smart and we're being more careful on, on underwriting, be more careful on the companies we select. Careful is really prudent right now. But holding off on investing, I would say, is not the smart thing. I think you got to invest all the way through good times and bad times. But being a little bit more careful is always a smart thing to do. And also what I've seen is kind of not really double down, but on companies that you have strong conviction, invest. Maybe you're going to invest a little bit more dollars in those companies because it's, again, valuations have come down for the most part. And if it's companies you like, you should even invest a little bit more, I'd say, to, in today's times. So. Uh, I'm excited. Uh, we'll see what happens. I do think personally, we could have a little bit more uh, volatility in a downward direction. And But again, ultimately, it's hard to predict. Uh, ultimately, if we look five years out, be in the best companies and you'll probably have a great return is my point of view. Historically, some of the best alphas actually happen in times where we've been in bear markets, where you know prices have reset. And in venture, it's really difficult because the time horizon of when you expect a return can be anywhere from three and 10 years. So it's hard to prognosticate out 12 months, let alone three, four, five years. And so ultimately, it is you know, buying the best assets. Totally agree with that. So I, I want to end with a maybe a teaser question for the next time you're on and really looking back at the, the MySpace opportunity that you're, you're in, which was back when... The internet was still fairly new. There was a few hundred million people that were uh, logged on and you built a, a great platform. But what was the biggest learning that you extracted out of that MySpace opportunity that has guided you to the type of investor you are now? Wow, it's a great question. But uh, you know, I think the biggest learning is once you provide a product and let the use give the users freedom to kind of build on that product, market the products. It's so powerful, the network effect that we talk about. And a lot of the companies we invest in have this network effect. If we've seen market leaders like Airbnb and we've seen what's happening you know, with Uber and today what's happening with Starlink and SpaceX where customers are your biggest advocates and spreading the word, it is so powerful. I mean, at MySpace, really what led us to succeed and grow was let, giving the users the power to market it for us. And... You can only do so much at a company. Ultimately, you got to build your product for your users and your users will be your best advocates. And uh, as we look to invest, we try to find products and companies that have that powerful user base. I mean, Discord is a good example. I have teenage kids and how much they're on Discord, how addicted they are to Discord. And that user base is letting that thing explode. So it's one example from this morning when I saw my kid on his Discord platform. But those are the platforms we like to invest in or lend against and work with. And I learned that firsthand at MySpace, watching the power of the network, giving them the tools. And ultimately, after we got bought, I see why that maybe led to the demise. A company like Facebook really focused on newsfeed, activity feeds, giving the users what they wanted to do. And they were very smart also buying companies like Instagram, where, again, those users are pretty, pretty incredible in building value. And we see, you know, Google is very smart with YouTube. Again, another company, YouTube, where, you know, you're, build, you're making features for those that YouTube community and they'll do their own thing and it'll grow from there. So it was a pretty fun experience to watch. And 
as I invest today, I look for those type of characteristics in companies. Uh, well, it's it's a fascinating experience that you uh, you know you have been through throughout your career. And thanks for uh, sharing all the thoughts and being on the show today. Anytime, Samir. Always good to catch up. You're doing amazing things. Thank you. Happy to talk anytime. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Josh. To learn more about him or Quid, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes of the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.